Absolute Zero by Robert P. Fitton. Episode 4, what's really going on here? As reporter Jack Irwin was what some rude people might call over the hill. Throughout most of his so-called career, he had not earned the most solid of reputations. He had resorted to fabrications of the truth, doctored photographs, and bribery. In fact, most of his time, aside from his nefarious activities, was spent bragging about his journalistic prowess in bar rooms or wherever he could find an attentive ear. Most of his peers avoided him completely. In his own mind, he knew the unexciting truth about his own accomplishments, or a lack of them. And at the age of 63, he was working laboriously in quest of one great story. It would have to be sensational, a spectacular oracle that would smooth over all the hollow boasting and empty exploits that had never been. If he found that story, and he was sure that he would, he would make the wrong things right. He was searching for the one thing that nobody was looking for. The burial ground of one of the deceased prisoners. The execution commission with the power over internment, and even those most close to the dead men were denied this knowledge. It was because of this fact that a family of one of the executed men appealed in a letter to Irwin for help. The bodies of the executed prisoners were missing. From that very moment, he was almost obsessed with finding the truth. He had followed the hearses in several previous executions, but had lost track of all of them at high speeds. He didn't dare to trail the hearse too closely, lest they spot him at once. In other instances, the hearse was traveling just too fast. Now he had an important, vital piece of information. Every time the Hurst had departed from a particular prison, it always left for the rural countryside. Every time the Hurst had departed from a particular prison, it always left for the rural countryside for a distance of at least 10 miles. In this evening, after Newman's death, there were four possibilities for the Hurst: North or South, or in the crowded interstate, East on the highway back to Craigville, or West on the highway into the hills. Irwin banked the ladder. He raced down the narrow, winding country road well in advance of the hearse, stationing his, stationing his car off the road in the woods. The wait was not long, and for once in his ill-fated life he had guessed correctly. His illuminated quartz crystal watch read exactly 6.30 as the hearse and the motorcycles passed at high speed. He sat tensely for a short time, and then he pulled the car out of the woods, spinning the tires and the leaves. Flooring the accelerator, he traveled for minutes on end at a faster rate than his blood pressure would have liked. But for all his planning, the Hurst was now nowhere in sight. Once again, as he slowed the car, he felt the pangs of failure. He banged both his hands on the steering wheel in disgust. Backing the car around, he prepared to return to Craigville, but stopped when he observed a partially overgrown dirt road to his right. He pulled onto the shoulder of the road and stopped his vehicle. He grabbed his cameras and got out of the car. He kicked the leaves and dirt with his feet. The road had just been used because the tire tracks led across the trampled bushes and the upturned earth. Son of a bitch, exclaimed the craggy Irwin as he threw a cigarette to the ground and extinguished it with his shoe. You got it now, Jack, old boy, he mumbled as he followed the trail into the woods. Once in the woods, the road began to wind to the left, and in the subdued dusk light, Irwin had trouble seeing ahead. He took each step carefully and started to breathe faster. The road, winding back in the other direction, started to rise to an apparent flat surface above. As he neared the top of the hill, he could vaguely hear voices, and when he did reach the top, he was astonished. 
There, with its red brake lights glowing, was the prison hearse. Although he was out of breath, he scrambled quickly to the left, rustling the leaves and crawled up a ledge, shielded by trees overlooking the field below. There were several men milling around the outside of the hearse and motorcycles were parked out front. They appeared to be waiting for something as they casually carried on a conversation. Irwin pulled the strap of his camera over his head as he prepared to set the camera to its highest light-gathering power. But his hands were unsteady and he lost control of the camera, tumbled down the rocks, smashing into the field below. What the hell is that? asked the motorcycle driver with a thick mustache as all the men turned toward the noise. Irwin retreated down the rocks and ran for the pathway. The men rushed over in the general direction of the rocks. Immediately they found the camera and caught sight of the aging Irwin running for his life down the road and tripping over the underbrush. Get on your bikes, boys, ordered the chubby little driver of the hearse. Damn it, I knew it. We're getting too cocksure of ourselves, he yelled as the bike spun out of the grass after Irwin. The pudgy driver leaned into the hearse and mumbled something to his companion who was dialing a number on his mobile telephone. It's not like Walsh to be late either, said a louder voice as he drew his gun. Keep your cool, Sonny. I'll hail Jay on the mobile, said the other man. Irwin could hear the cycles crunching the bushes as the two men closed in. His car was less than 50 yards away, but he was tiring rapidly. Sharp knife pains in his side. He looked back as he ran. The headlights shone around the corner. If he could just stand the pain, he could get to the car. The motorcycle zoomed around the corner and men fired in his direction, the bullets shearing through the leaves around his feet. He slowed and stopped and turned to the men for mercy. Wait, wait, please, don't kill me, I didn't see nothing, he said as he dramatically got down on his knees and folded his hands. They stopped their cycles and walked up to the babbling reporter with their weapons drawn. Please, I'll do anything, don't kill me, my, my film was destroyed, he begged. No, we're not gonna kill you. We merely want to halt your progress, <laughs> said the mustache man as the other men searched the pesty reporter. Irwin, national fact finder, said the other driver as he handed Irwin's wallet to his partner. What are you kidding me? You almost had yourself quite a story, Irwin. Paul, get out of the road and make sure that he is alone. Right, Doug, he replied as he ran to his bike and drove up the main road. Now, Mr. Irwin, after you catch your breath, which could be any time during the next year, would you march back to the clearing? I'll be right behind you with the gun train on your head, so don't make any sudden moves. I'm marching, I'm marching, exclaimed Irwin as he nervously marched like a prating soldier. The motorcycle driver smiled as he steadied the seat and followed the reporter down to the dirt road. It was darker now and the headlights illuminated the dried yellow grass and the broken shrubs. Irwin, immensely relieved that he was still alive, reached the top of the hill, pounding a cadence under his breath. A man named Sonny talked on a remote telephone. The mustache man parked the motorcycle, leaving the light on, and escorted Irwin over to the hearse. He handed the reporter's wallet to Sonny. Name's Irwin, national fact finder, said Sonny to the party on the other end, as he held his phone to his ear. Now, Mr. Irwin, we don't want to do any harm to you, but I must caution you to be truthful because your life could be in jeopardy. Were there any other people with you tonight, or does any individual know of your presence here? No, I swear, I swear I'm alone. I was trying to break the story. Nobody knows. Honest, honest, I wanted full credit. You're gonna kill me? 
he asked, as his mouth hung open. No, no, not if you're telling the truth, said Sonny as he lifted the telephone back up. Jay, claims he's alone. I know that. You checked the road all the way back there, over 10 miles, Jay. No, they're 10 minutes late, he said as the other motorcycle entered the clearing. The driver got off the bike and walked over to Sonny. Wait, wait, Jay, Paul's here. Oh, he's alone, Sonny. Car's at the beginning of the road, he reported. Did you hear that, Jay? Right. Where, where can we do that? All right, all right, said Sonny as he looked at the headlights appearing at the other side of the clearing. Jay, Walsh is here. We'll get back to you. Good. Good night, he said as he reached in the car and set the telephone on the dash. He slid out of the car and then stood up. Erwin, you're going with Walsh. Doug, get rid of that car. Jay doesn't want any trace of it. I have to tell you all that Jay is very upset. Security procedures will have to be revamped for the next execution in Texas. Join us next time for another episode of Absolute Zero by Robert P. Fitton. Produced by Fitton Theater of the Words. <laughs>